0: If you will turn your attention to your scripture sheets or if you have your Bible, and we do encourage you to bring your Bible to Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 54, and then we'll be turning to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. While he was still speaking... Do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Before we look at this passage, we will do what we always do. We'll pray and ask the Father to teach us. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come as your priest in thanksgiving. You are a congregation of priests directed to be so by Christ. And we've prayed. Father, we look over the last year and see in this place how you've answered our prayers beyond our imagination. And so this morning, in faith, knowing that you reign, knowing that there's no molecules anywhere in this universe flying around loose, that you're sovereign. And we pray for our brother and our friend, Phil Halley, We say, Thank you, Father. Thank you for how you have brought these changes. How little by little, inch by inch, day by day, hour by hour, we've seen improvement. Oh, Father, keep improving his health, restore him completely, our Father. Give him patience but also, Father, give him faith, trusting in you. I pray that, Father, you bless Sally as she comes to and from the hospital. Protect her, keep her. I pray she'll be an encouragement to, to Phil, and that Phil will be an encouragement to her. Now, Father, as we open your word, Oh, yes, Father, we do pray for our friends at Harvest Church. We pray that especially this morning, this Lord's Day, you'll wipe away the tears, that they'll find comfort as they speak to each other in the power of the Spirit and as you bring your word to bear upon their lives. Oh, Father, bless that church. For the glory of Christ. And now we pray as we open your word. That you'll teach us. John Sartell cannot teach. So that it will make any difference in our lives. Father. I can't say anything this morning. You know that I know this passage. But I can't teach it. In a way. That will change us. At the very core of our being. And that's what we pray for. Father. Father change us, maybe some of us for the first time, but Father, those that have been changed already grow us in the very core of our being, continue that change. When we leave here in a few minutes, may we know that you have spoken. That's our prayer in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I believe the chief question that this chapter asks of any Christian in any age, the key question is, do you really believe that Jesus is sovereign over evil? In Revelation, we have witnessed the greatest of wars, the war of all wars, we've witnessed it being fought. We often speak of the war between good and evil. In Revelation, the good is personalized by the Holy Trinity, by the Father, by His Son Jesus, a Son of God and Son of Man, and by the Holy Spirit. The evil has been personalized in Revelation. By an unholy trinity in Satan, the beast or the Antichrist, and the prophet of the Antichrist. We saw in Revelation 13 a beast raised up that had the same characteristics. He looked so much like Satan, but was not Satan himself. He's called the beast. In other passages, New Testament, he's called the Antichrist. In the same chapter, chapter 13, we saw a second beast rise up. That was a prophet of the first beast. Satan was making an effort to copy what God had done in the incarnation. This was a counterfeit trinity. This unholy trinity made war against the holy trinity. In chapter 13, the beast and the prophet seemed to reign with devastating authority and power. They sought to eradicate the kingdom of God on earth. John, in the letter we call 1 John, told us that in all centuries... There would be many antichrists. And in Revelation, he reveals that there will be one ultimate antichrist just before Jesus returns. Look at this. Look at Revelation 13, verses 7 through 10. Speaking of the antichrist. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe. Look at this. Every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captive, he goes. This is what will happen in this time of the Antichrist. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword, he will be slain. And what's he call on us or anyone that lives through this period? He says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This will be a period when the church seems to be devastated And evil seems to reign uncontested over all the earth. In chapter 17, we read of the unholy trinity building a worldwide secular culture, a worldwide city named Babylon. Again, Satan has been about this effort in every age, reaching all the way back to Nimrod when he built the original city of Babel which became the city of Babylon but the unholy trinity will finally be allowed to build such a worldwide culture immediately before Christ returns like it's never been built before oh it's here we see it in this country but this is something like the world has never seen so this has been a summary from chapter 11 through chapter 17. If you go back and read it, read it this afternoon, you'll see it. It'll just glare at you. We see it evil in an ascendancy as never before in the history of the world. Evil seems to reign so much so that the people of God will seem to disappear. The church and the work of Christ will appear to be eradicated. Thus, the title. Of today's message. Do you believe. Do you really believe. Jesus is sovereign over all of evil. Because when we see evil. To that degree. What do what we say. Where's God. Where's Jesus. This should not be happening. It will seem as Christ. Has been defeated. As if he's weak. Now. That's a summary where we've been. But with chapter 18, everything changes. The great worldwide secular city of man, the city that is saturate, saturated with materialism, sexual immorality, and perversity, saturated with a hatred for God, this humanistic culture and city of the Antichrist is destroyed. We talked about it. We saw it in chapter 18. Chapter 18, Chapters 18, 19, and 20 have a completely different focus than those chapters 11 through 17. The chapters 18, 19, and 20 are focused on the fall and complete destruction of evil. In chapter 18, the great work of the unholy trinity, the worldwide secular city of Babylon is destroyed. However, did you notice Some of you did, because you said something about it. Babylon's destroyed, but John, what about the beast? What about the prophet of the beast? What about Satan himself? Well, they remain. And that brings us to chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Now, if you're listening to this, you know, my desire is not just I teach this or I preach this and you see a point or two. My whole goal, I've thought about this all week long. Why why are we doing this? My whole goal is that you would be able to go home today and look at your notes. And so, you know, okay, I've got it. Chapters 11 through 17. Then chapter 18, the fall of Babylon. Chapter 19, We see this great worship of heaven in the first few verses. And then with verse 11, I hope that that as we go through this, that you'll be able, if your wife is not with you this morning, I hope that you'll be able to go home and say, I can tell you, I don't understand it all, but I can tell you what verses 11 through 21 of Revelation 19, I can tell you what they say. That's my goal. Not that you would just hear it, that you would get it, that you would be able to explain it. Chapter 19, verse 11. We see this is a majestic scene. Not focused on the power of evil, but focused on the power of Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. Let's read it. Let's read the scene again. Look at it. See the majesty of it. See the glory of it. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a scene Heaven opened, and John saw a great warrior king on a great war horse. This one is called faithful and true, who wages a righteous war. Now, first we must settle the identity of this glorious warrior king. Some are confused by the words of verse 12. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. That phrase simply means that he is one who is beyond comprehension. Yet, we can be certain of his identity. It's quite obvious. He's a king who wears many crowns. He's also called, what? The Word of God. The Apostle John is the one witnessing this scene. He's the one writing this. How does John begin his gospel? How did He had written his gospel by this time. How did he begin his gospel? In the beginning was what? Was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then what happened? We read in verse 14 of John 1, And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the same incarnate Word. The Son of God and Son of Man riding forth in glory. Then John observes on his robe and on his thigh is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's only one who bears all of those titles, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Lamb of God. That's who it is. That's his identity. he goes forth to make war. Now we hear we read the Gospels, and we, we hear the love of Jesus, and we hear Jesus meek and mild and humble. This says it plainly. He's going forth. I mean, the scene is so powerful. He's going forth to make war. Here the pacifist must reconcile his position with the theology of scripture. This is Jesus. There's such a thing as a righteous war, as a just war. This sight should be overpowering to us. The warrior king, the king of kings and lord of lords is leading the armies of heaven. You see this figure? You see him? Got your sight fixed on him? Well, this is the same person. This is the same Jesus. Peter was going to protect with a single sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when that paltry group of soldiers, well, it wouldn't have been paltry to us. They were to Jesus. They were to, would have been to this warrior king. There were several hundred of them. They had been sent to arrest Jesus by the high priest. And what had What did one of the disciples do? Peter, he whips out a sword. He wasn't a good swordsman. He didn't hit the man in the center of his head. He hit the side of his head and cut off his ear. What did Jesus say to him? We read it this morning. Peter, do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me 12 legions of angels? Folks, what was Jesus saying? The warrior king riding forth from glory before the armies of heaven. In Revelation 19, is the same Jesus of Gethsemane. The same Jesus. Here's Jesus of Gethsemane. Here's the great warrior king of heaven riding forth. It's the same Jesus. These are the legions. He said, I can appeal to my father and there will be legions of angels at my disposal. Well, those riding behind Jesus on white horses—those are the legions of angels of whom Jesus spoke. What's the point? As we look at Jesus in the Gospels, is day day after day, week after week, month after month in the Gospels, we should tremble at the restraint of Jesus because he is the Lord from glory. Think about it. He patiently endured the humiliation, the humiliation of mockery, the humiliation of spittle, the humiliation of the crude agony, of the shameful trial, the flogging, the cross. This this Christ riding forth in power is the same Christ who endured the flogging of the soldiers of Rome. Go back and read that passage this afternoon. Read it. Here are these soldiers, crushed, experienced veterans of the Roman army, the greatest army the world had seen up to that point. And they're laying the back of Jesus and the flesh of Jesus wide open. And he's this Lord of glory riding forth on that great war horse with the armies of heaven. It's the same person. He endured that crown of thorns. We sang this morning, crown him with many crowns. Well, they crowned him that evening in a crown of thorns and laughed. The religious leaders stood at the foot of the cross. If you're Messiah, if you're Christ, come down, save yourself. Chad Walsh got this. Jad Walsh was a 20th century poet an author of prose and poetry, a college professor. He was converted to Christianity through the writings of C.S. Lewis. Walsh wrote a poem about Jesus on the cross. In the midst of the taunting and jeering and spittle, Jesus' eyes turned to anger. And he yanks out the nails from his hands and his arms and his feet. And he stomps off through the crowd. When we read Revelation 19, the restraint of Jesus on that cross. The Son of God and Son of Man, it seems beyond belief. We've witnessed nothing like that in the history of the entire world, how God was restrained that day. One cannot read this powerful scene in Revelation 19. One cannot see this powerful vision without weeping in awe at the restraint of the Christ of the Gospels. We have witnessed the same restraint in the face of extreme evil or extreme tragedy or extreme suffering. We've all seen it, we've all experienced it. And what have we said? In the midst of the suffering, we've said, where are you, Jesus? If you're reigning, where are you? Where are you, God? What did Jesus cry at Calvary? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a wonder that God did not break forth from heaven and cry out, how dare you do this to my son? When we cry out, God, the next time you cry out, God, where are you? When the suffering becomes so hard, God, where are you? I can tell you, I can answer the question right now. Call me on that day and I'll tell you the answer. He's at the same place he was when his son was crucified. Next time we say in our suffering, Jesus, where are you? If you're real, if you're reigning, where are you? And he'll reply I'm at the same place I was when I was crucified at Calvary. You see, Jesus was sowing the same restraint. In our lives, Jesus is showing the same restraint sometimes. The same restraint that he did at Calvary. At Calvary. In that awful suffering. You see, God had a greater plan. Jesus had a greater plan. At Calvary. In that... And that awful suffering. The disciples did not understand. What did they say? He's not reigning. He's not who he said he was. And they were walking off and said, it's all been for naught. But at that moment, Jesus was actually winning a great battle. Satan saw defeat on that cross. He saw the defeat of Jesus. But then he understood. Then he understood afterward. The defeat had been his, had been Satan's defeat. Jesus suffering that day was really the greatest act of redemption and victory the earth and heaven have ever witnessed. Look on your scripture sheets at Colossians 2, 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's speaking about the church. You were once dead. God made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he forgive them? By canceling the record of debt that stood out against us with its legal demands. How did he cancel the debt? He set it aside, nailing it to the cross, nailing it to Jesus. And what happened? With this, he disarmed. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That cross, that suffering was actually a great victory. While the disciples were in utter despair, thinking all was lost, at that very moment, Jesus was actually winning. It's a victory that we sang of this morning, this very morning, and we'll sing about it next Sunday. We see we're prone to look at this Lord of glory riding forth and say now that's winning that's victory oh we sing of the victory we sang this morning the victory at Calvary when our dear savior died and canceled out our debt In our own suffering, we may only see the pain and hurt, but he's reigning. And even in that moment, even in his restraint, there's a greater purpose and a greater plan. And we trust that. Well, in Revelation 19, how does he win the victory in that battle? This is beautiful. The armies of heaven are mentioned in verse 14, but notice The battle is not described. It's not described here. But how he wins the battle is described. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now we've seen this previously in Revelation. When John first sees the risen and ascended Jesus in chapter 1. How does John describe what he saw? He describes this fabulous scene beginning with with, uh, well, let's just read it. Verse 12 of chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed the long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth, look at this, from his mouth came a sharp two edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What a strange, strange sight. Have you ever seen anyone walking around with a sword sticking out of his mouth? It seems ridiculous. Remember, Revelation is a picture book. It's a book of pictures. It's a book of visions. And the pictures are filled with symbols that convey the truth. When Jesus returns, will he be riding a white horse? Probably not. It's a symbol. That means power. The warrior king of heaven will be returning in power. We will Will we see a sword protruding from his mouth? Probably not. It too was a symbol of power. Jesus has only to speak, and the armies and nations are eradicated. That's what it's saying. This scene given us by John in Revelation 19 is also prophesied by Paul. You know, we look at when we want to talk about fulfillment of prophecy, we say, all right, the prophecies in the Old Testament, and the fulfillment of the prophecies in the New Testament. Well, that's not completely true because there's New Testament prophecy that's even fulfilled and talked about in the Old Testament. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Paul is speaking about this Antichrist. Same subject that John's speaking of in Revelation. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, that's the second coming, will not happen until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul talked about this. And you would know what is restraining him. Now, so he may be revealed at that time, for the mystery of lawlessness is all God's restraining him. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he gets out of the way, until God moves his hand of restraint. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Then what does it say? Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. When Jesus returns, how will the antichrist be killed? By Jesus' speaking. Jesus is only to speak. And he will be eradicated. The breath of his mouth, that's what it says. That's the picture that John is saying. The sword, a weapon of destruction, is pictured as coming from the mouth of Jesus. It's the power of the word. Well, what John sees next seems grotesque. A great angel covered with the light of the sun shouts to the scavenger birds, the buzzards, to come and feast on the bodies of the beast's armies. You know, at the end, this is not common to us, but John had seen it. At the end of ancient battles, birds would come and feed on the thousands and thousands and thousands of corpses strewn across the battlefields. This is a common sight. The scene, again, symbolizes the total defeat and destruction. The birds will eat their flesh. That's what he's saying. It's a total defeat, total destruction. And then John brings us, finally, to the subject of the chapter. Look at it in verse 19. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse Chapter 18, going back there, describe the destruction of that culture, the culture that had been built by the unholy trinity, the secular city of the beast. It had been destroyed. Babylon had been destroyed. Chapter 19, the culture's already been destroyed. Chapter 19, the destruction of the beast and his prophet. That's the purpose. You come down to the end of the chapter and all the scene, this great glory from heaven, this great warrior king. They've come to destroy the Antichrist and his prophet. This is no small thing. When we consider what this ultimate Antichrist will do dominate the entire world, all but eradicate the church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, we have never seen a ruler in this world that exercised such power and such evil. It is understandable why Jesus takes time to describe the incredible rise and complete fall of the beast of the ages in Revelation. Well, that is the what and why of Revelation 19. But I want to return to the saints who will suffer through all this. Some of you, when we talked about the antichrist before, and I knew this was going to happen. I should have told you before you were going to say this. But almost every person I saw from Christ's covenant that week said, You know, I want to go home to be with the Lord before the antichrist appears. I don't want to be here when that happens. Well, your wiseness, I can understand that. You understood. You got it. But what about those who will suffer through this? Who live through this great ascendancy of evil? Even if they were slain, there's still a picture of the reign and victory of Jesus. Remember, we've seen it before. Those martyrs, home in glory, slain by the evil one. Home and glory, victorious. But you know why? You know why they got through? They knew God was reigning. They knew Christ was reigning. They said, You do your best, Antichrist. Do your best to the ungodly culture, we say. Do your worst. I'm faithful to him. I'm going to be faithful to him. Remember when Satan said to God, God? God said, hey, Satan, look at my servant Job. Look how faithful. And what does Satan say? You've been good to Job. He owns, I mean, he's a a multimillionaire. He's got a healthy family. Let me have my way with him. And I'll prove. He'll curse you, God. He'll curse you to your face. And what did God do? God let Satan have his way with Job. That's what he's doing. Some people have said, why? About the antichrist. I don't entirely understand it. But I think Job gives us a hit. God says, Satan, you can do your worst in my people will be faithful. They know I reign. Satan had his way with Job. Job lost everything. Lost his family. Lost his children. Lost his wealth. He was a man stricken with poverty. He questioned God. But through it all, Job was faithful. This is a subject of Scripture. Scripture deals with this. Look at Habakkuk. We're through Habakkuk 3.17. This is not just poetry. It's truth. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. And there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That will be the testimony of God's people. You know, you may say to me this morning, I don't want to live through that time, and you may not. But I can tell you this. I swear to you, it's a truth of scripture and the truth of where we live. If you don't understand it, you're blind. You are living in the midst of Babylon right now. You're living in the midst of the culture of the Antichrist. Those of you that have said in these last few years, I, I don't recognize this. God. What is happening? And the speed with which it's happened. You live in the culture of the Antichrist. You may not see the Antichrist come, but you're in his culture. Well, how will those people stand? How will they be faithful? Why will they be faithful in the day of the Antichrist through all that suffering? The same way that you'll be faithful living in the culture of the Antichrist. The one thing you know Jesus reigns. God, his Father, reigns. And that's a truth that Satan, in all of his power, can't change. But unless you're convinced in the absolute reign of Christ, that's why the question, do you really believe? So this morning. Do you really believe? I mean, do you really believe Jesus reigns over all evil? You say, hold it, John. We've read about the destruction of the Antichrist, but Satan remains. Yes, he made it through chapter 19. But next week, we look at chapter 20. And the title of the message is The Story of Satan from the Incarnation to the Return of Christ. Our hymn is most, most fitting in Christ alone. Let's stand and sing. Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be in us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said,